the Guardian. So, look at this picture on All my right. laptop in front of you. Okay. Do you notice anything about it? What What do you see? It is a baby, and it has nail polish on. This is Salvi Shalai, a journalism graduate who's been spending a couple of weeks with us in the audio department at The Guardian. I showed her a photo of a sleeping, two-week-old, white baby boy with light blonde hair, dressed in a baby grow with his name, Jace, on the front, with a blue dummy, or pacifier for our American listeners, beside him. It looks kind of fake. The baby looks kind of like one of those AI models. It's not AI, mm-hmm. um, but it is a, a doll, uh-huh. so a kind of lifelike doll, uh-huh. and it's actually based on a real person, okay. an Instagram star, who is currently four months old, and at the time of the doll was two weeks old, called Jace. The doll is being sold by his parents for fans at a price of $350. Why? They have 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube, so... I guess they thought that is a big audience and maybe we can celebrate their support of our newborn child by offering them the chance to own. That's very creepy. Oh my God. Yes, you heard correctly. Sarah and Chris Ingham are selling a 19-inch soft-bodied replica of their youngest son, Jace, for up to £344. This reborn doll comes with three outfits, a hat, a dummy with clip, nappies, a birth certificate, a gift bag, and a pen. That's really weird. (laughs) That's so weird. Why would anyone want this? People will inevitably have different feelings about this business venture. But one of the questions this announcement raises is, how will Jace Ingham feel about the doll in, say, 20 years' time? How would you feel if you found out that your parents had done this when you were a baby? I think I would be quite uncomfortable and start doing immense research as to how many were sold and where they are so I can possibly destroy them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is incredibly weird. This reborn doll is an extreme example of what the young social media stars of today may have to contend with years after their parents and guardians decided to document their childhoods. There are a number of legal questions that have yet to be worked out. And as these children grow older, we will see some of them taking legal action against their parents. It's quite exploitative uh, on myriad levels. The digital era has seen children and adolescents find a voice online that wasn't an option for those of us born in the 20th century. But with this new power comes a lesson in responsibility. And responsibility has never been a strong suit for children. If the message being sent out to young people is once you've said something or done something, there's no room for change, I think that that is potentially very negative. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I'm talking to the author of a new book that explores the dangers facing young people today who might find it difficult to distance themselves from their pasts long into the future. This is Chips With Everything. My name is Kate Eichhorn, and I'm an Associate Professor of Culture and Media Studies at the New School. 
So we're talking to you today because of your new book. Could you give us the name of the book and then maybe in one or two sentences what it's about? My new book is called The End of Forgetting, Growing Up with Social Media. And the premise of the book is essentially to explore what happens when you grow up in an era where you can't control what images or texts from your childhood and adolescence move forward into the future. Yeah, when people talk about the potential impact of technology on children, it, it always tends to elicit a lot of fear. And I wonder what your goal in writing the book was, if not to scare people. I certainly did not want to say that we should limit access of uh, children and youth to new technologies. But I do think that digital media represents a profound shift, not because children are necessarily being harmed by the content they encounter online, but because they're implicated in the economy of technology in a way that they weren't in the past. You write at the beginning of the book about the notion of childhood innocence. As the digital era dawned, parents, educators and policymakers worried that the internet and the kinds of things that children might find on it could ruin this kind of inherent innocence and thought that there should be barriers in place to control what children could see. But some experts argued against that narrative, right? Absolutely. It was a small minority, but there were some people early on who recognised that Although it's fair to say that any new technology does expose children and young people to content that one might find questionable, that in fact, those fears are usually exaggerated. And early on in the history of the web, there was a huge moral panic about what children would encounter online. If you go back and look at articles about the internet in 1994, 1995, 96, Almost all the articles about children seem to focus on the potential ways in which the internet would expose them to pornographic images. And while some of that might be true, in actual fact, what happened and the kinds of problems and challenges that have emerged were ones that we didn't necessarily anticipate at the time. Anyone born in this century has grown up in a world of ubiquitous technology. And I don't think we've got to a point where we've started saying that people no longer have a childhood. Now, you say that childhoods of today are just more autonomous than those of the past. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, in the past, it was very difficult for children, for example, to document their lives, circulate images of their lives. And it was also very difficult for them to create communities or networks without the mediation of adults. With digital media, on the one hand, young children, particularly tweens, are still confined to the private sphere. They still spend a lot of time in their bedrooms. But if you're hanging out in your bedroom with a tablet or a iPhone, you can be connected to millions of people. Children and adolescents are now able to create worlds quite separate from their parents' world. And often um, there's been you know, cases where young people become social media stars and they're, they have millions of followers. And in some cases, the parents are shocked to find out that their child is an online celebrity. They don't know until people start calling them up and inviting their child to fly to another location or sponsor a product. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. 
Throughout the book, Kate weighs up the importance of being able to forget. One interesting lens through which she examines this question is by comparing migrants from the time of the Holocaust to those fleeing Syria today. Yeah, I, as I was writing the book, it was a, a period when almost every day in the news we would see images of young migrants and they often, you know, traveled with nothing but some personal papers and their cell phone. So that experience has been excessively documented. By contrast, in the 1940s, people who were on the move, um, either because they were forced to, to flee or chose to, often had to leave everything behind and had no documentation of their lives at all. And so I've been thinking um, a lot about how different things will be for young migrants in another 15 or 20 years. Will images of their journeys, which were often quite traumatic, reappear online at times when they, maybe they don't welcome the reappearance of those images? So there's something powerful about the way they've been able to leverage digital media. But I also think that their memories of their journeys might not be fully in their control. You say that the shift from analog to digital is affecting our experience of the past in a number of ways. What kinds of ways do you mean? I think that in an analog culture, it was, first of all, when you took an image, uh, there was often a long delay between capturing an image and actually being able to see that image or circulate that image. So the moment of recording and broadcasting were generally separated by time. It also meant that there was a lot of selectivity about what kinds of images you decided to produce and circulate. Everything happens much more quickly now. We have far more images. So what we've lost in part is that moment of contemplation. How this will impact us moving forward is yet to be seen, but it seems that the chances of something reappearing from the past that we do not welcome has certainly increased. Right. Does growing up in the digital era mean that we've lost the ability to do stupid things and not be reminded of them later in life? I would say yes. And two recent incidents at, at Harvard University where they offered students an acceptance and then later took the acceptances away based on something that those students had said either on social media or in one case in a shared Google Doc that had been used for a classroom assignment. What's clear though is that in the past, the university likely would have never found out about that behavior. So on the one hand, there's something good about people having to be more accountable. But on the other hand, if the message being sent out to young people is once you've said something or done something, there's no room for change. I think that that is potentially very negative. Kate talks about a term introduced by a 20th century psychoanalyst called Eric Erickson. The psychosocial moratorium comes from Eric Erickson, who was... A it's a time when a young person can figure out who they are. It didn't refer to moratorium on experience. It referred to a moratorium on consequences. And although I would argue that 
some young people have never really been able to fully take advantage of that moratorium on consequences that broadly speaking across cultures there tends to be a sense that young people should be able to make more mistakes than adults and be forgiven for those mistakes and and to move forward it's why in most countries we treat young offenders uh, differently than we treat adult offenders Children now have access to technology that kids 20 years ago, like me, never had. So phones with inbuilt cameras, with filters that they can apply, and the ability to post photos and videos to whoever they want anywhere in the world. Now, you say it's good to give children the power to represent their own childhoods how they want, rather than having adults decide what gets to be a memory. But are there other dangers to this kind of thing? I think that, for me, the biggest danger is the fact that the reason why young people are finally able to document their own lives and circulate images of their own lives widely isn't because people are suddenly interested in what young people have to say. And I don't say that to be cynical. I think it's just that the real reason they now have access to these technologies is because private companies profit from their data. Mm. And, you know, I'd like to say that back in the 1980s, young people hung out at the mall, and if they didn't purchase anything, which is often the case, they were seen as loitering, they were seen as a nuisance, a social problem. Now, when young people hang out online, just hanging out online is generating data and driving the profits of private technology companies. So to me, the real question is, the unpaid, uncompensated digital labor that young people are participating in and usually have no idea they're participating in when they're online. After the break, we'll look at how the youngest generation could be affected in the future by what their parents choose to show of them now. It's one of the most obvious ways in which we're losing control of our ability to track where photographs circulate over time. And this is profoundly different, of course, than that box of photographs maybe we had shoved in a drawer back, you know, in the 1970s or 80s. More on that after the break. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, I'm joined by author Kate Icorn to talk about her new book, The End of Forgetting, Growing Up With Social Media. Before the break, we discussed how the dawn of the digital age has changed the way that childhoods are framed. Children can now choose how they represent their own childhoods. In the not-so-distant past, Children relied on their guardians to choose which photos and documents to keep as memories for them when they grow up. Back then, your parents or grandparents might have an embarrassing photo of you in the bath, but it was just one photo, in one location, and you could usually trust that your family wouldn't share it with everyone they met. The kids of today have social media to contend with, and something that Kate talks about in her book called Sharenting. I think social media has had a profound impact on how people talk about their kids, how they share images of their children, when and with whom. 
I think people are thinking more seriously about whether or not they should put all the personal images online. Uh, and some parents are making different decisions than they might have five or 10 years ago. But uh, increasingly, many, many people do, even before their child is born, start posting images of their ultrasounds. And so even before a child is born, there's sometimes already this kind of digital trace of that subject beginning to form online. Producer Danielle and I were talking about the approach that some parents take of hiding their children's faces on social media, but in many cases, still sharing lots of posts about them and, you know, photos with their backs turned with plenty of information about how they're raising their child or maybe even complaints about how other people are raising their children. How much of a child's privacy is actually protected by maybe sticking an emoji over their face? It's important to remember that digital photographs, they aren't just representing something. Digital photographs also have a lot of metadata in them. You can use a digital photograph to find out where somebody was at a particular moment, their location. So I think that it's naive to assume that simply not showing your child's face is necessarily going to protect their privacy. And this raises another concern. Moving forward, will we have children as they're in their late teens or early 20s, in some cases, taking legal action against their parents for overexposing them as children? I think it's likely that that will happen at some point in the near future. Google is holding meetings in Europe on the so-called right to be forgotten. They're discussing an EU ruling that allows people to ask Google to remove online links to information that may be inaccurate, irrelevant or out of date. We've spoken before on this podcast about the right to be forgotten. Does current legislation allow for the kids of today to decide in, say, 20 years that they no longer want to have childhood photos of themselves available online? That is yet to be seen. Technically, if somebody wants something de-indexed and they're not a public figure and the information that is in circulation is no longer relevant, they should be able to make that request. We also know, though, that how the right to be forgotten is enacted varies from country to country. And as someone who lives in the United States, I don't see anything resembling the right to be forgotten ever being put into place. There's quite a bit of resistance to the idea of enacting that type of legislation for a variety of reasons. Again, I think it might have something to do with the fact that most of these large digital platforms are located here. So taking things off the internet um, compromises their profits. Experts have discussed potential technological ways that we can provide the children of today a way to wipe out a particular digital footprint they might not be proud of. But Kate explains that it might come at a cost. In highly capitalist societies, just as we've monetized remembering, that it's likely moving forward that people will begin to monetize forgetting. For example, parents who are quite wealthy will hire in the United States a college advisor to help prepare their children to apply to top universities. And one of the services they increasingly offer is a digital footprint cleanup. So I think moving forward, what we'll see is people who have the means will be able to broker uh, the deletion of 
some information online. And people who aren't able to do that will be in a more compromised situation. Remember baby Jace from the start of the show? And the lifelike doll of a real-life four-month-old boy that is being sold by his parents for up to £344? He obviously can't consent to this kind of thing at such a young age, but Kate warns there might well be a potential future backlash from the likes of Jace and any other young person who got famous, but not of their own accord. Will children who have been famous memes since they were born grow up and be excited that their parents were able to make all this money off their baby photographs and videos? Um, or will they take legal action? I think that that will depend on, on the individual. What is clear to me, though, is that in many jurisdictions in the world, if you're a child entertainer, there are very clear laws about when the child can work, under what conditions, and also how much money the parents can keep. In the United States, in many states, the parents have to put most of the money that a child actor makes or a child entertainer makes into a trust fund. Um, and it's not available until the child turns 18. If a parent is making money off their child on social media, those laws don't apply. So I think that there are a number of legal questions that have yet to be worked out. And as these children grow older, we will see some of them taking legal action against their parents. It's quite exploitative on myriad levels. Kate explains that throughout the process of writing this book, she was often met with this positive idea that children growing up in the digital era won't actually spend much time in the future trying to have their digital footprints forgotten, because they'll grow up knowing better what not to post in the first place. And she thinks there's some truth to that notion. I think that we maybe don't give young people enough credit sometimes. I do see increasingly very young kids, 13, 14, 15 year olds, engaging in reputation management. So in the past, it used to just be politicians and celebrities who had to worry about reputation management. And now I actually regularly encounter young people and I live with two young people who are very concerned about reputation management. And it's one of the reasons they spend so much time online. They know if they post a photograph, they need to be monitoring how people are going to respond to it, what they're saying about it. And so I do think that they're already doing some of that work. But once again, it's important to bear in mind that moving into the future, they will have to confront things from the past that people who grew up in previous eras simply did not. So for me, the question isn't so much about whether or not young people should have access to technology or not. It's not to me a question of, of censorship. It's not even really about content. I think ultimately the kinds of conversations we need to be having are about profit and data mining. Huge thanks to Kate Icorn and Salvi Shalai for joining me this week. There'll be a link to where you can buy Kate's book on the episode description on the Guardian website. But that's all from me this week. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.